Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson from the ministry staff at Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The following was recorded on Sunday, May 7, 2023. Today's message title, A Covenant with God, a continuing study of the book of Nehemiah, chapter 10. So, um, Nehemiah chapter 9, if you weren't here last week, we've been sort of spending a, a couple of weeks going over Nehemiah chapter 9. It's the longest recorded prayer in the entire Bible. Uh, and now we're going into chapter 10. Um, and I think this is a, a wise move because uh, they're, the people of God are doing something amazing, but they lack something that I think is critical. Because um, I think the people of God realize in chapter 10 that words are cheap, that what you say doesn't really matter as long as you don't live by that. You can pray whatever you want. You can say things that you don't believe or promise things that you never intend to deliver on. So the worth of your word is shown by your follow through and how faithful you are to what you say. I mean, how many of us have heard of or seen depictions of abusive relationship where one husband or one wife keeps abusing the other and yet they say all the time, but I love her or I love him. Have you, have you heard of this scenario happening? So many say, well, I can't leave even though I'm receiving this punishment, these beatings, and I'm living in fear because he loves me. And yet at those scenarios, from the outside perspective looking in, we could look at that and say, your words are actually cheap. Your words don't mean a thing if you don't live by them, if you don't follow through with what you're saying, that it doesn't really, really matter. Now in scenarios such as spousal abuse, it may seem very obvious to us who are not a part of that scenario, but for too many people, they make the exception uh, when it comes to uh, words being used for religious intentions. How many people are roaming around this island right here? How many people are roaming around this world, walking around thinking that they're Christians because they prayed a prayer one time, right? They may have gone to a service like this. A preacher may have said, hey, do you want to follow Christ? Would you raise your hands? And they raised their hand and they maybe came forward and, and the preacher said, well, would you repeat after me? You know, Jesus, I give you my heart. I am a sinner. You are my savior. Um, I give my life to you. And I, I believe that you are my Lord and savior. Uh, how many of you have heard about this, this sort of sinner's prayer that is pretty typical? There's, okay, there's one. <laughs> I, th I think this is pretty common in a lot of churches today where we see this type of prayer. And there's nothing wrong with the prayer itself. In fact, I think those words, if you pray a prayer saying, Jesus Christ is my savior, he's my Lord, those words are really biblical, right? You can go to your Bibles and you can find in Romans chapter 10, verses nine through 10, where that's basically what Paul the apostle is saying. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? So there's nothing wrong with the words themselves, but what we think, I think the problem is, is we think if we just say the words, if I confess Jesus Christ to be my Lord and I say the word Lord without really knowing what it is that I'm actually saying, then that's going to matter. But the Bible says, no, 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 you have to believe that too. In chapter 10, 
we see the Israelites are coming together after a prayer of praising God and repenting before God. And they're making a covenant with God on how they plan on changing in light of the glorious truth they just prayed out in chapter nine. And so we start with the first 29 verses. And I think, I, I think if you're like me, you're like, what, 29 verses? These are short verses. Again, we have some great baby names coming up. So uh, would you read with me? Let's, let's stand as we, as we read Nehemiah chapter 10. Let's start with uh, the first 29 verses. All right, here says Nehemiah 10. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hekeliah, Sedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malchiah, um, Hatush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, uh, Mush, Meshulam, Abia, Miyamin, uh, Miyamin, Maziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these are the priests and the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Menui, of the sons of Hanadad, Kadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Peliah, Hanan, Mika, Rehob, Hashibiah, Sakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Peros, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Satu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bebai, Adonia, Bigvai, Adin, Ater, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodaya, Hashum, Beziah, uh, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Mekpias, Meshulam, Hezir, Meshes, Mesh, Ezabel, <laughs> Zadok, Yadua, Pelatia, Hanan, Anaya, Heshaya, Hananaya, Hashub, Halo, Hesh, Pila, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabnah, Masaya, Ha'aya, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, Bana. Ah, okay. This is, we're getting there. Um, and all of a sudden there's a, a Russian dude over here. Well, I forgot to, to get the other verses. Let me read them from here. Uh, so we finished the, 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 the names of the people. And here in verse 29 and 28 and 29, it says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the land and lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who had knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and entering into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our God, the Lord and his rules and his statutes. Amen. So that's the, those are the verses that we're going to be starting with. You can be seated. So what have we established with a, a long list of names? Well, first we have the, the, the leaders of Israel. We have the civic leaders of Israel. Uh, when they say uh, the chiefs among the people, we have the religious leaders of Israel. When we talk about the Levites and the priests, but then we see, okay, who else joins in? We see literally in verse 8, 28, and all who had separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who had knowledge and understanding were in this group of people and they were coming before God and they were saying, we want to make an oath to you how we are going to change in light of who you are and how we are going to live now. And here we most definitely have people who are thinking people. 
right? They're seeking to conform their minds to uh, mind to the mind of God as they know the law of God. In the previous chapters, we've seen uh, a revival take place because they're reading the scriptures to them. They're starting to shout with praise and then weep uh, in repentance as they realize just how far they wandered of the road that God had called them to walk in. Um, and now they're not wanting it to simply remain a head knowledge. They're seeking to transfer it into how they now behave, how they work with their hands and how they observe what God has said. Now, there's a key factor, I think, that's missing in this book of Nehemiah because the book of Nehemiah sounds a lot just like the entire Old Testament again. So we have people who come together here. They're saying, God, we want you to curse us if we don't follow through with our promise to you. And yet you keep reading the book of Nehemiah and it seems like, oh, this is the pinnacle. This is the end of the Hollywood movie where they just ride off into the sunset and everything is perfect from here on out. No, 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 no. Just keep reading a couple of chapters and you find the people of God have already started to, to walk away from what they promised God that they would do. Now, I always want to make sure for us, as we read the book, as we read the Bible, that we would learn from brothers and sisters that came before us because we have a rich history of family that came before us that can show us what the Christian life should look like and what it looks like to walk faithfully with God. And yet you have a lot of examples in, in, uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where you have examples, not of what it looks like to follow God, but rather warnings, what it, looks, what it doesn't look like. And here, I think there's a failure among God's people because they have their head, heads informed. They have their hands ready to go and be changed in light of what they know to be true. Uh, but I think there's a critical piece missing because when you, when you become a Christian, your goal in life is not simply to know more Bible verses, like read the new Testament and you will find some of the best theologians in the Bible were actually the religious leaders who tried to crucify Jesus and the demons who knew exactly who Jesus was before anybody else did. If you were simply going by theological knowledge and who would have the most theological knowledge it would be those groups of people and yet they entirely miss the point. So the purpose of the Christian life is not to know more about God, but rather that we would, that we would live in light of who God is and what he's called us to do, to let him impact every corner of our life, how we think, how we talk, how we behave. People will tell you, stop talking about Jesus. Stop forcing your religion on me. How many have you heard, heard the sentence, religion is a private matter, right? It's like politics. You don't talk about it in the office. How many of you heard this? Again, just, just Elliot and Christian. No, it's okay. Um, so how, uh, this is said so often and it's almost like accepted cultural truth. Yeah, of course, religion is a private matter. Well, according to Jesus, religion is not a private matter. <laughs> in fact, it's almost the complete opposite. We read the verse every Sunday as we close the service, go and tell the world about Jesus. That's that's literally the opposite of religion being a private matter. Your prayer um, is most certainly personal. Your faith is most certainly personal, but it's never private. In fact, it is the opposite of private. We are tasked with telling the world about Jesus. But as we'll see in the verses that unfold, their head is in the game. Their hands are ready to do work for God. And yet there's no mention of their heart. So they know what to do. They want to do, or they, they decide to do it, but do they 
do it for the right motivations? Are they doing this because of their love for God? It seems to me that the nation of Israel has fallen into the same trap that many churches fall into today here in Nehemiah chapter 10. Thinking that, man, the purpose and point of the church or the people of God is so that we can take people in who are pagans, who are non-Christians, who come to faith, and we can tweak their behavior to make them look more like Christians. So a lot of churches think, man, our goal is behavioral modification. But when, when we do that, we miss the point that this is actually about heart transformation. Certainly behaviors change when you come to know Christ. I mean, it is odd to say, I have met the Lord of the universe and walked away unchanged. He basically said, Gunnar, you were doing a great job before I came. So keep doing your thing. Isn't that weird? But the Bible tells us, man, he transforms our hearts. And yes, our behavior starts to change, but it springs out from a transformed heart that loves the Lord. Otherwise, no change will stick. And even if it does, it doesn't matter because you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You can stand before God one day, living your life as a moral Christian. And you can stand before God saying, look at my church attendance record. Look at the amount of money I gave. Look at the old ladies that I helped with the grocery bags to the car. Look at all the good stuff that I did. And you can say, man, look at how morally improved I am as a person. And yet you can stand before God and realize you have no savior because you thought it was all up to you to look more like a Christian and not realizing that Christianity is about coming to Christ in need saying, God, will you take me as I am? I think, honestly, when I read Matthew chapter seven and you know that those shocking verses where he, you know, Jesus is telling the story of people coming to God at judgment day saying, Lord, see all the things that we did in your name. We preached in your name. We did miracles in your name. And what does he say to them? Go away from me. I never knew you. That just sort of shakes you, right? Because you realize at that point, hell might be filled with morally improved people, even religious people. But the thing about moral improvement, uh, the thing about man-made religion is it can fool you into thinking that you have gotten to the point where only Jesus can take you. But here in Nehemiah chapter 10, the people realize logically the tragedy that has befallen them ever since they left God. It, it reminds me of this man. He, he lived in the Soviet Union. Uh, Russians, how do, you, how do you speak this? Alexander, Russian speakers? Alexei, how do you say that? Solzhenitsy? Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and I was hoping some Russian speakers would be here to, to help me. This man, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he, he wrote a bunch of books about the fall uh, of the Soviet empire. And uh, he, I think he wrote like eight of them in total. And, and he, he, uh, he basically said, okay, if you would ask me to be concise about what happened in the Soviet Union, as he looks back and he says, see 60 million people have needlessly died uh, with the rise of communism and all that type of stuff. He said, to summarize all that has happened, I would put it this way, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened, right? What was he saying? Men had forgotten God. So they were making up their own rules. 
Also, men had forgotten God, so they thought that there were no consequences for their evil doings in private, not realizing that one day they would meet God face to face. He was saying all this tragedy, all this death, all this destruction has happened because men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And I think when we get to Nehemiah chapter 10, we see that the walls have been restored, but the city of Jerusalem is largely empty. And they look around and they realize they've been hearing the law of God being read to them. They've been hearing their ancestral stories being read to them. And they're realizing, man, the reason why all this has happened is because we have left God. I think they're at a similar point where Alexander was after, after the fall of the Soviet Union. See, the Soviet Union sought to forget God by replacing him with atheism, placing the government as the ultimate power and authority that deserved your allegiance above anybody else. But here, you have two very different ways to forget God. One is to place government as your God functionally. But here with the Israelites, they're going through something different. I think what they're going into is they're believing the lie that Adam and Eve fell into back in the garden. What was the original lie that Adam and Eve fell for in the garden? It was to not trust that God was good. Right? Here comes talking snake already should be a red flag, right? (laughs) He's saying, hey, what if God actually just doesn't want you to be like him? The first doubt is maybe God is hiding something from us. And so what are the Israelites going through throughout their history as they turn away from God to false gods and false idols regularly? What's going on in their mind? Isn't it the same lie that Adam and Eve fell for? Well, what if God is actually hiding some true joy, some true prosperity away from us? And actually, if we start to worship God this way or this other God, then we can finally be actually joyful. And so Alexander, he saw what happened when, uh, when people try to place government as God to the people. And now the people of the book of Nehemiah are looking around and they're seeing the effects of people running after false gods all the time. You know, in the 20th century, we thought we'd just get rid of religion. And if we just got rid of religion, finally the, 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 the joy, the, the peace would prosper, joy would replace uh, just suffering. Anybody know uh, the, the John Lennon song, right? He, he, put it, he put it this way. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. There's no hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people just living for today. Sounds awesome, right? Oh man, if we just live today. <laughs> then you know, nothing to kill or die for, no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. He's singing this in the 20th century, which happened to be the most irreligious century of human, humans on this planet. And at the same time, the bloodiest century we have ever seen. Just imagine if we'd let go of primitive thoughts like God, man, the peace that would prosper. No, we killed. We don't have to imagine anymore. We can say with Alexander, man have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. It turns out that when you take God out of the picture, there's no foundation for what's true and right and beautiful. There's no reason for self-sacrificial love or patience. There's no purpose or point to human existence, no grounding for institutions like the justice system or no uh, 
foundations for, for ideas like human rights. All of a sudden, when you try to push God out of the picture, everything around you crumbles and the Israelites realize that they need to turn back to God and they seek to do it with informed heads and equipped and ready hands to do the work that he's called them to do. And they say they'll follow all the law of God. Now think about this. The Old Testament has 613 different rules that they're saying, we're gonna, we're gonna follow all these different rules to the T. And they actually, in their prayer, in this covenant that they're making with God, they're highlighting some uh, specifically sort of, sort of uh, yeah, I mean, big idols that humanity faces. And so the first idol that they mention specifically by name is this idea of subjecting love and romance to the will of God. This is actually very applicable even today. So in verse 30, they, they say this, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So this is the first covenant that they're making with God. Uh, one of the things that God underlines again and again in the Old Testament is this idea of not marrying the nations around them. Now, some of people have twisted that into, into making it a racial thing. It's not a racial thing, but it's for religious reasons. God did not want his people to mingle with the nations around them to, to start to be influenced by their thinking and their worship and start to look more and more like the people around them. Because the point of Israel, the point of God's people is to be a light into the nations, not to be like them. And so often the way, uh, uh, and so often the way worship has changed was through people marrying the people around them. Uh, people from other nations started importing practices and worship to the people of Israel. And again and again, the people of Israel and the kings and the judges of Israel start to wear off the path and they start to worship false gods. And it's just amazing because you read through the Old Testament and you see like God is opening up the sea. <laughs> He's doing miracles to save this nation. And yet you just flip the page and there they go again, running after false gods. And as always is the case, when that happens, bad theology doesn't just simply stay bad in theory, but it starts to ha- hurt people. But it leads the people of God to horrible things like child sacrifice. Now God had called his people back, not to be imitators of culture, but rather the creators importers and sustainers of a different kind of culture, a godly culture. It called his people not to be influenced, but rather be the influence. The same call exists for God today. Like Romans chapter 12 is a great chapter for this. Our our minds are supposed to be transformed by God. God's people way too often what we tend to do is we start to conform to the people around us instead of bringing godly change with us and being the change instead of being changed. Now in the Old Testament, you see a glimpse of people bringing change. You see in the book of Ruth, for example, um, a foreigner coming and joining the people of God saying, I want to be a part of the people of God. Their God is going to be my God. I will worship with you. I will be a part of this group. You see even Rahab, uh, the prostitute in Jericho, what is she doing? She's like, I want to be a part of your people. And you see what happens. You see sort of glimpses into God's people, not being influenced by the cultures around them, but rather influencing the people around them. And it's beautiful. And even like with those two ladies, you think about Ruth, think about, um, what's her name? Uh, I just mentioned her name. 
Rahab, <laughs> Rahab, um, you read Matthew chapter one and you see the lineage of Jesus. There's an odd thing about the lineage of Jesus there. There's three ladies mentioned and two, that, those are two of them. All of a sudden you see how beautiful it is when the people of God are not being influenced by the people around them, but rather influencing all the cultures around them, bringing in people to be a part of the people of God. But too often the story of Israel was the reverse. They were not changing the culture around them. In fact, they were being changed by everybody else. The tragic tale where the people of God were not the light in the darkness anymore. All of a sudden they just turn off the light and they become one with the darkness. And today we still have this counter cultural call. And it's really weird because today, if you really want to be a sort of countercultural rebel or punk as, as, as the 1970s, I think you used to call them punks, isn't it? 1970s, 1980s, 1980s, right? They were all about men going against the culture, like whatever is, whatever everybody else is doing, I don't want to do so on and so forth. If you really want to do that today, if you really want to be an actual rebel in today's society, we've gotten to the point where like getting married, following Jesus, being a part of a church, taking on responsibility, loving your family well, that's all of a sudden become the thing that's like super rebellious and odd in today's society. The punk look like normal people did in 1950s. (laughs) But here's the thing, subjecting the idea of love and romance to the will of God is a real battleground for a lot of Christians today. This is one of the probably biggest idols of modern society. And there the Israelites are dealing with this thousands of years ago. This is still a thing. This is still relevant to us today because they were vulnerable to, well, I mean, I know I'm not supposed to marry that girl, but you know, she's a cute little Moabite, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, and they would develop feelings and like, well, did God really say, I don't know. And all of a sudden compromise would happen. And it didn't seem like much at the beginning, but then the ball would start rolling. All of a sudden kings were starting to worship false gods and so on. This is still an idea today. The Bible tells us in the Old and the New Testament, to find wives and husbands who share our faith, right? Who are walking in the same directions. But this is still a thing today. I've, I've had this with countless, countless people. Well, what if I date, like missionary date, you know? I'll go on a few dates with this girl and I'll tell her about Jesus and she becomes a Christian and we live happily ever after, you yeah. know? Or, yeah, <laughs> I see a few people shaking their heads. Yeah, uh, we have the right idea. It's like, well, what happens when you get feelings for that girl? What, what happens when you get feelings for that guy? Are you still going to follow what God says or all, all of a sudden are you following what your feelings say? The Bible has a lot to say on how we approach romance and love. The Bible tells us the sex, for instance, was made for one man and one woman in the context of one marriage. But once those feelings start to arise, it's real easy to start ignoring the commands of Christ that you don't like. You see people claiming to be followers of Jesus where your faithfulness to Jesus gets tested because of love and romance, right? You see heterosexual couples wanting to reap the joy of of sex without the commitment of marriage. You see people struggle when, you know, they go into marriage, all of a sudden the butterflies in their stomach are gone. And now they actually have to start fighting for their marriage to be faithful, to be a godly wife, a godly husband. And all of a sudden, ah, What God calls me to is inconvenient at this moment. It goes against what I want. 
You see people who struggle, may deal with homosexuality to wonder if is it worth the sacrifice to be celibate? If I don't change, if God doesn't do anything to be celibate and, and follow Christ? Well, how about the lady who's just fallen in love with a guy who's not a Christian, but he's such a nice guy. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. I've, I've heard stories where this works out. In fact, when I got married, I would have told you I was a Christian. I wasn't. Uh, I didn't realize it, but I wasn't. It worked out in my case. People have told me, well, if it worked out in your case, shouldn't we just go for it? No, it's like driving through a schoolyard, going 100 miles per hour. Yeah, I didn't kill anybody, but I don't recommend everybody else do the same thing, right? It's like it worked out that time. The idol of love and romance is so persistent and hard to kill because it's an idol that people love. Because I think, I think we tend to do this when we say, I'm going to follow Jesus. What we actually mean is I'm going to follow him as long as he's going in the direction I was going to go in anyway. As long as he agrees with me on everything that I want to do, I will follow him. But what if he calls us to let go of something that we love to cling on to? Right? Our faithfulness to Christ is not measured by how quickly we can let go of the things that we don't like anyway. But when Christ points the finger at something in your life and he says, this has got to go, and you love that thing, that's when our faithfulness to Christ is tested. Say, hey, am I willing to listen to Christ on this call or not? Do I truly believe he is the way, the truth? Do I truly believe that he is my Lord and I will go where he calls me to? And at that moment, when he calls us to let go of something that we really love, do we then believe that God is truly good? That he has the best of intentions for you. He, he wants you to flourish. He wants you to have joy in him, that he is all knowing and he knows better than you and he's trustworthy. Do we truly believe that in those moments? Yeah, we may sing about it on Sundays, but do we truly believe that when we go into a Wednesday? Because let me tell you this, I've seen, I've seen the outworking sometimes of people making this decision. One lady particularly said, no one in the church told me that the Bible said to marry other Christians, right? And now she's been married for years and years. They have kids together. And now she's realizing, man, it's really difficult to raise someone up to walk with Christ when the other partner is mocking God. And the heartbreak that you see all the time. Now, when God says, let go of this, are we willing to do that? The Israelites said, we're, we're willing to do that. But again, <laughs> words are cheap. You see just two chapters later, they're, they're taking another turn. But the second idol that they seek to cross is another persistent one. Subjecting work and rest to the will of God. They say in verse 31, and if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, the second commitment they make is to seek to be faithful to God 
over endless profits, to be willing to let go of possibly earning more to rest as God has commanded them. Now, why is this such a huge deal? Why is it so hard for us to do? And by the way, this isn't just for them back there. Like this is for us today. Uh, I was, I was trying to find this article I remember reading a while ago. Did you, did you guys know that in the 1960s, there was a bunch of futurists that were predicting what the year 2000 would look like? Uh, by the way, I think it's so funny. Imagine having the title of futurist, right? What do you do, Gunnar? Well, I'm a futurist. <laughs> what does that mean? I sit around and I wonder what the future is going to look like. But they were like coming together. They had a lot of things right about what the year 2000 would look like. Um, but one of the things that they predicted they were way off about was that with the rise of technology and machines, there would be less need for work. And so the average person by the year of 2000 would only work about 14 hours a week. That was their prediction, 14 hour work week. And yet here we are, 2023, computers have come, machines have definitely come. And oddly enough, it seems the amount of hours that we work is actually not decreased, that's increased. And because of technology like this, we can walk out of our jobs and still kind of feel like we are in our jobs because people can contact us all the time. And here the Israelites are saying, we want to be faithful in business. Now, if they would grasp the heart behind the command of God to keep the Sabbath, it would be this. We know that we gain, we know that what we gain in material goods is nothing compared to what we already have in God. Can you imagine living in a society like this? Where farmers every seventh year just didn't work for a whole year. <laughs> they didn't do anything with the ground, letting the ground rest and living off of the, um, the, the previous seven years of, of crops. Or can you imagine? Uh, a life where Visa and MasterCard all of a sudden wipe out debts every seven years. Everybody gets a, a free-for-all again, or what, what would you call it? Not a free-for-all, but uh, I guess a clean slate. Yeah. Can you imagine what that's like? Now, you may not realize this, but what is at the root of a of, uh, heart that is always bent on working? It could be greed. Man, I, I, I want to work more so I can get more. But I think so often what, what's at the root of a heart that just can't stop working, can't rest, can't just trust God and enjoy God is this idea that, man, nothing feels like it happens without you doing it. Everything will fall apart if you're not in this. If you take a break for a day, man, the nation might just fall apart while you're just enjoying your walks on the beach. But this is the people of Israel saying that they want to work for the glory of God, knowing that the work itself wasn't a part of sin entering earth, but rather that God has called us to work diligently and for his glory. Fruit is a good gift from God to be done to the glory of God. But as is so often the case, Satan comes in and he ruins something good like work. When we take something good like work and we make that God in our life, our functional God, then all of a sudden that good thing becomes the very thing that's destroying our souls. And the last part that they go, the idol that they seek to smash um, is to subjecting, subjecting the money to the will of God. And we read here in Nehemiah 10, 32 to 39, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God 
for the showbread, the regular rain offerings, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feast, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our Lord, of our God, according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord, our God, as it is written in the law. We uh, oblig- man, obligate, yeah, obligate ourselves to bring the first fruit of our ground on and the first fruit of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our, of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herd and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions to the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, uh, Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes of the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contributions of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. So here we have the people, lastly, coming to the biggest idol, maybe of our day. When we come to God, he may transform our minds. He may transform our language and how we use words, our habits, our goals, our careers, our hearts even. But sometimes the very last thing that uh, we have uh, a problem with letting go of is when God decides to touch our wallets and say, hey, we, I want you to use your money differently. And I find it interesting. Jesus said uh, to, to the people listening to him in Matthew 6, 24, one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And I I find it very interesting that he uses the examples there of God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. Uh, But you think about this, how many of you have heard the sentence, money is the root of all evil, right? It's almost biblical, right? The Bible tells us this in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. So it's almost biblical. Uh, but so what, what, what we get from the Bible is Jesus warning us from the false idol of worshiping money and worshiping what you can get from God instead of having God himself. And what the, what the people in Nehemiah chapter 10 are saying is, hey, we're gonna be careful to use our money to worship God um, and not let money become our ultimate functional God and become bad and destructive for us. Now, what is God's good way to help us in our battle against greed and the idol of money um, being transformed from something even good or neutral to become something bad when we start to love it and worship on the altar of money? I believe that God's call for us is to be generous people and participate in God's work in this life. Because I think there's a lot of things that happen when we give to the work of God. Um, I, I just, I've seen a lot of things happening in my own life as I grew up with this principle 
And I, I love it because every time I give, it reminds me of a lot of, uh, well, a few things. Let me run over just four points as we come to a close. I believe when I, when I give my money, I, I really remind myself that I believe that God can do way more with the 90% left of my money than I can do with 100%. Uh, number two, when I give to God, as I let go of my tight grip on money, I remember that my joy is not found in the things that God can give me, but in what he's already given me in Jesus Christ. And number three, when I give money, I'm, I'm functionally saying, I wanna be a part of a different kind of culture that follows a different traje trajectories and believes in the word of God and the work of God that's supposed to be. I wanna be a part of the work of God here on earth. And number four, I wanna be a part of the work of God that outlasts what I can do with my money tomorrow, but that can hopefully impact generations to come for all of eternity. And the last reason when we give is to remember why we give. Again, I think the, the whole problem with Nehemiah chapter 10 and the whole tragedy of this thing is that they have informed heads and they have ready hands to serve God. And yet they totally forget why they do this. And it seems to not last even a quite a, a little bit because you keep reading a couple of chapters and they're back to where they started before this. And I think this is important. The only reason that the people could give in Nehemiah chapter 10 was because of what God had done. Right? We've read through Nehemiah. We've seen God come in and restore the city. We've seen that they were being attacked by foreign nations. The only reason why they even have the protection to worship freely and to give freely is because of what God has done through Nehemiah and other people like Ezra. So how, as they even read the word of God, how, how he had created a nation by calling Abraham and Sarai, how he had freed a nation from slavery in Egypt, sustained them for 40 years in the desert, giving them a land to live on, and now restored the, the, the city of Jerusalem, they realized that the only reason that they could give was because of what God had already given to them. This is the crazy fact to me and the mind blowing fact. I can spend all of the rest of my life giving every penny I earn to back to God and yet I can never repay him because the very breath that I have to do the work and to earn that money is a gift from God. I can never outgive God. And so the reason we give, the reason we worship is not so that we can give something to God that he doesn't, doesn't have already, but rather we are worshiping because he's given us so much. When we give, we can think of Christ hanging on a cross, giving his life for you and me. When we give, we can remember him paying a debt that he did not owe so that we can have eternal life and be freed and joyful. When we give, we can remember the gift of Christ. Because it's not just about what we do, as we will learn here in Nehemiah. It's about why we do what we do. What is the very thing that motivates us? And that's the reason why we have, uh, that's why we break the bread, we drink the juice, we remember Christ's broken body for us. We remember his blood that was shed for us. And just like, just like food and drink nourishes the body, gives life to the body. So, so the work of Christ nourishes us, gives us life for all of eternity. And just as this, as we hold the broken bread and we hold the juice, we feel how close it is. We can even remember at that very, very moment because of what Christ has done, Christ is even closer to the things that we can hold. He is in us. If you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you as a seal to remind you of your home to come.
And so as you go into this week and as you prayerfully consider, okay, God, what is it in my life that I need to let go of? What are the idols of my heart I may cling on to so closely? Remember what Christ has done. Remember that he has freed you. Remember that he has bought you with his blood and remember to glorify him. And remember to learn from the Israelites, not only to know God up here and to be ready to serve God, but to remember why you do this. It's not that you can earn the love of God, but rather because of what Christ has already done for you. So let's go into this week, continuing to worship. Let's pray together as, as we worship. Father, I thank you and praise you for everything that you've done for us. Father, for your grace, for your mercy, I pray that you be with us, that you sustain us. Father, as we face our various idols, Father, I pray that we would worship you with informed minds, that we would worship you with transformed hearts, that we would worship you with equipped hands, ready to be used by you, ready to glorify you, ready to enjoy you. Father, we praise you for everything that you have done, for everything that you are doing. And I pray that you would have, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're doing around us so that we would be fixed on you seeking to glorify you, seeking to know you, seeking to enjoy you, seeking to make you known. In Jesus' name we pray. Father, we praise you as we remember Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kyrka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with The Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavar, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland. Iceland.